Yay for extra credit. Um, <laughs> thanks for coming out. Uh, and uh, even if you're not here for extra credit, thank you too. Uh, that's good. So, no, seriously though, it's uh, awesome to see so many folks here on Friday afternoon before happy hour. Uh, so, maybe we'll all do that after this. Uh, definitely want to give a, a big thanks to everyone who helped to, to organize this. Um, Carly for the, for the invite, for all of the departments and programs that converged to, to bring me here. Uh, and Paige was very helpful, so please let Paige know how grateful I was for the many emails we exchanged as well. Um, and Catherine, thank you so much. Uh, so very, very good to be here. Um, I am, uh, as Carly mentioned, from Nebraska. And so uh, my mom and my sister here, as well as uh, one of my oldest friends, who we actually knew each other in preschool. Um, I always tell a story about us in preschool, which I won't tell and embarrass you. Um, but so it is good to be home and ran into like one of my college professors last night at the restaurant. So yeah, it was very, very strange, but good. Uh, so um, I, I, I'm happy to, to be here to talk about some of my latest work. So my last book, uh, Queer Migration Politics, I was really interested in looking at the, the intersections and the interconnections between um, queer politics and immigration politics, but very, very contemporarily. So that book pretty much looked at rhetoric and discourse from 2006 to 2012. So it was like uh, really, really new stuff. Um, and part of my project in that book was to, to think about coalition a little bit more broadly than a lot of the, the literatures um, think about coalition. So not as necessarily a coalition as an object, um, but uh, looking at what I called coalitional moments, and so these kind of instances of coming together uh, that are ripe with possibility for radical change, and so I'm really interested in these kinds of comings together um, that may not be enduring, but that they may be. Um, and so uh, as I was working on that book, um, I was invited to do uh, an essay for this journal called the Quarterly Journal of Speech, um, which is sort of regarded as the flagship journal um, in our field, which of course means the kind of scholarship I do, I'll probably never actually get published there in a peer-reviewed fashion. So uh, I had this opportunity to have an essay published there, so I was like, oh, well, I should do this. Um, and so I kind of made up an abstract about, based on a little article that I had read about um, Haitians uh, who were um, AIDS activists in the early 90s in New York, uh, Haitian immigrants, and I was like, oh, this is kind of an interesting convergence of my interest. And, a nice side project, and so, uh, you know, wrote this abstract up. And then when I went to do the research, I, I couldn't find any research, <laughs> so I was desperate. And I then I, I learned about um, uh, a series of archives about uh, what happened in 1991 to 1993 um, in uh, in Haiti, which was um, there was an overthrow of their democratically elected president um, Aristide in 1991, and a lot of political refugees fled. And uh, the U.S. was very freaked out by this and uh, detained many at Guantanamo Bay so they didn't actually reach the soil of the U.S. to be considered legitimate refugees. Uh, but what happened was they actually, they let people go or sent them back, whatever, if they didn't have HIV. But if they were legitimate refugees and they did have HIV, they were essentially kept in a concentration camp uh, for close to two years, like 150 people. Um, and so I read, I, I learned about the activism that was around this issue, and that's really how I got interested in the bigger project um, that I'm, that I'm um, interested in, which looks at these kind of intersections. And so I'll say uh, more about that. And this, this piece, well, all of the pieces, actually, I'm very much in the early stages. So uh, I, I invite uh, your feedback. Uh, I will be very appreciative. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm an old school uh, rhetoric scholar, so... Uh, there will be no PowerPoint. I'm just going to try and read in a sort of, um, uh, you know, oratorical fashion. So uh, hopefully you won't fall asleep. Um, but uh, so I shall begin. Uh, despite a diverse history of AIDS activism, both scholars and lay people have tended to imagine HIV/AIDS in the U.S. largely in relation to gay men. The most memorialized and discussed AIDS activism from the early pandemic emerged from the group ACT UP. The AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, a group typically remembered for its use of queer, often militant political strategies on behalf of white, middle-class, urban, uh, gay male U.S. citizens. Activism is important to understanding HIV-AIDS because, as historian Jennifer Breyer notes, 
AIDS workers have been central actors in the global story of AIDS, yet much of this work has faded from public and scholarly view. This absence is most true for AIDS activists working as or on behalf of sex workers, drug addicts, people of color, and or immigrants, those communities rarely meriting widespread attention. The Centers for Disease Control reports that more than half of HIV AIDS cases in the U.S. have afflicted men who have sex with men. Nevertheless, as AIDS scholar Brett Stockdale writes, HIV AIDS has always been a problem that has severely affected those at the intersections of multiple oppressions, homophobia, racism, sexism, and classism in particular. What Stockdale does not develop, and with the exception of the great work by N. Ordover, most others who write about AIDS activism minimize or miss, is the way in which xenophobia and norms of citizenship function as additional sites of oppression greatly impacting people's experiences with HIV AIDS. Since the beginning, U.S. immigrant communities from Haiti, Africa, Latin America, and Asia were not only devastated by AIDS, but some of these immigrant groups were also widely stigmatized as the supposed origins of AIDS and as high-risk groups for contracting the disease. Furthermore, early on in the pandemic, U.S. policymakers swiftly passed laws and provisions banning those with HIV or AIDS from migrating to the U.S., and forcing those already in the country deeply underground in order to avoid detection, possible detention, and deportation. Learning about the community work, sense-making, and rhetorical practices of AIDS activists pertaining to immigration policies and within immigrant and migrant communities is vital to our understanding of HIV AIDS and AIDS activist history. Examining this AIDS activist rhetoric reveals how discourses on race, citizenship, and national borders work along with health, gender, sexuality, and economic discourses to produce understandings of HIV AIDS and to condition the possibility for activist response. So my next book, AIDS Knows No Borders, a slogan and rallying cry of AIDS activists fighting restrictive immigration policies for those with HIV and AIDS during the late 20th century, will show how AIDS, queer, and immigration activists constructed coalitions to radically alter U.S. health and immigration policy and politics from the start of AIDS in 1981 till the lifting of the ban on HIV-positive immigration in 2010. This time frame is an important one as it encapsulates the pandemic when it was at its deadliest. Uh, major shifts in immigration politics and law surrounding key pieces of legislation and concerted efforts within immigrant, migrant, and refugee communities. This monograph will address a significant gap in the scholarly literature regarding the public's memory of HIV AIDS and AIDS activism by offering a perspective that doesn't center the experiences of white gay citizen men. This book will further intervene in the racialized ways narratives of AIDS activism are recounted in historical, media, and rhetorical research, which, when race is present at all, has largely focused either on U.S. citizen communities of color or non-U.S. contexts such as Africa, Haiti, or Latin America. This book will also illuminate how activists interceded and participated in the racist, nationalist, and xenophobic discourses that impacted those immigrants living with HIV AIDS during this time period in the U.S. Thus, the book will address several, several intersecting points between AIDS and immigration policy and the subsequent activism. So in the opening chapter, uh, I will detail the political and legislative development of the eventual ban uh, that prevented HIV-positive people from migrating to or regularizing within the U.S. Um, the ban was first discussed by the Reagan administration in 1985 and became law for the first time in 87. Uh, and then as I started this presentation, uh, another chapter will document how activists responded to the detention uh, of um, Haitian refugees on Guantanamo Bay. Uh, another chapter will detail how farm worker activists working in rural communities with migrants engaged in health and political activism and education regarding HIV prevention and treatment, um, as well as some of the challenges that they made to federal law. The chapter I'm going to discuss today uh, regards activist boycotts and protests of the 1990 and 1992 International AIDS Conferences. Both conferences were scheduled for the U.S., despite that the U.S. had the ban on travel for HIV-positive people. The boycotts and protests of these conferences are important sites of rhetorical investigation because they represent key instances of, one, a needed politicization of the science of AIDS and also of transnational coalition building. AIDS activists and other supporters who had focused extensive energies on the rights and needs of U.S. citizens inside U.S. borders 
turn their attention to international matters and building sustained transnational connections in order to fight HIV AIDS, repressive government policies, and ultimately to save lives. At the same time, an examination of the boycotts, the threats of boycott, and subsequent protests reveals unique character characteristics of boycott rhetoric, which is increasingly relevant right now, um, and how boycotts connect with and compel other kinds of rhetorical movement strategies. Uh, so in this paper, I first discussed boycott as a rhetorical strategy and considered the dearth of scholarship in communication about boycotts. Uh, next, I provide some context on the international AIDS conferences and why boycotts were proposed and carried out. From there, I'll consider the rhetoric of the boycotts and the related protests and how that rhetoric uh, politicized scientists and created the possibilities for extensive transnational coalitions. So part one, looking at boycott um, as a strategy. Fedra Pizzullo, uh, who's a communication rhetoric scholar, notes the paucity of attention to boycotts within the fields of communication and cultural studies. This dearth is somewhat surprising because boycotts, an example of what James C. Scott calls weapons of the weak, hold such a significant place in U.S. American protest history, and scholars have been immensely preoccupied with protest and movements. Psychologist and leading thinker on consumer boycotts, Monroe Friedman notes, it can be argued that the boycott has been used more than any other organizational technique to promote and protect the rights of the powerless and disenfranchised segments of society. Now, one reason for the lack of attention to the intricacies of boycotts as a communication strategy has to do with a view of boycotts as primarily an economic activity. Even Pizzullo, who draws from Friedman, defines a boycott campaign as a concerted refusal to spend money, as well as to convince others to refuse to spend money on a product or service in the hopes of changing specific conditions or practices of an institution. Despite the emphasis on the economic, Pizzullo maintains that the importance of looking at these kinds of protests as communication scholars lies in the ways in which boycotts reveal the blurry lines between the economic and the cultural in order to affect political change. Of course, some boycotts do not involve economic campaigns, but may issue a call of action against particular kinds of non-economic participation. Uh, for example, uh, oppositional parties who view an election as unfair may boycott that election in order to render it illegitimate. Uh, marginalized people may boycott practices of the powerful when they are suspicious of the aims of those in power as being against their own interests, uh, such as what happened in a 2003 boycott of the polio vaccine by numerous people in northern Nigeria. In that instance, not only did rumors exist that uh, the vaccine would spread other disease, but many also wondered why Western doctors were so eager to vaccinate a population when routine health care was otherwise scarce, so they boycotted the vaccination. There are also scientific and academic boycotts, um, which may have an economic component, but can also involve researchers simply refusing to collaborate with scientists from a particular country due to the policies of that country's government. Uh, such a strategy relies on the lack of intellectual progress and on humiliation as methods to persuade change in policy or action. Uh, this last kind of boycott raises another long-standing concern around boycotts as a strategy, which has likely prevented communication scholars from spending significant time with boycotts as subjects of study, uh, the question of boycotts and freedom of speech. So some have argued that boycotts are inherently violators of free speech. Others have said that they are minimally unfair or coercive. Now, wherever one falls on the legal or philosophical questions, all boycotts are interesting rhetorically. The boycott of the 1990 International AIDS Conference and the threat to boycott the 1992 conference help illustrate some of the interesting rhetorical dimensions of boycotts more generally. These boycotts did not rely on economic pressure to incite change. Instead, it was the moral and political pressures making rhetoric their central mechanism. Boycotters did not necessarily seek to hit program organizers or cities in the pocketbooks. They withdrew their attendance and encouraged others to do so in order to pressure the United States to change its immigration policy. Moreover, in exploring activist rhetoric that questioned a boycott, encouraged one, and otherwise considered a boycott's merits, a fuller picture of what is at stake in a boycott and also what kinds of rhetoric it can engender and inspire, I think also becomes clearer. So now I'll focus on the, the boycott of the 1990 International AIDS Conference. The first International AIDS Conference was hosted by the World Health Organization, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and other collaborators, and it drew 2,000 participants to Atlanta, Georgia in 1985. Just four years into the new disease, 
this collection primarily comprised of scientists and public health officials dedicated itself to understanding HIV from a biomedical perspective and to finding a cure. In 1988, after three conferences and an increased complexity to the perspectives present at the conference, including sociologists, behaviorists, and people living with HIV, the International AIDS Society was founded and tasked with running the conferences thereafter. In the midst of this time, the U.S. government also passed that ban I was talking about on HIV-positive migrants wishing to come to the United States. AIDS activists in the United States also became increasingly organized and agitational in their approach. So the AIS, the, the AIDS Society, found itself in the middle of controversy as early as 1987 when activists expressed frustration with the lack of political leadership at the conference in Washington, D.C. At the Montreal Conference in 1989, hundreds of U.S. and Canadian activists occupied the stage and rose reserved for VIPs in order to protest inaction by their respected governments as well as the ban on travelers. The events at this conference ensured that political perspectives would always be part of the conversation. Yet it was clear scientists and public health officials organizing these events did not always fully grasp the importance of including political perspectives and those of people living with HIV. At the 1986 conference in Paris, San Francisco was chosen to host the 1990 conference, which is the one I'm primarily going to talk about. Given San Francisco's role both as epicenter for the disease and also its unique community-based approach to responding to the disease, San Francisco was seemingly ideal um, to host the conference. But again, because HIV-positive uh, immigrants and travelers were no longer allowed to travel, this severely limited who would be able to participate in this important conversation. The question of the ban, though, apparently did not come up quickly enough, or perhaps organizers believed the ban would, in fact, be lifted beforehand. Either way, as a result, the, the society, AIDS Society, did not move the 1990 conference on the grounds that there wasn't enough time to do so. So because of the ban, basically what would happen, immigration officials would regularly question people about their HIV status upon entering the United States. Uh, if an HIV-positive person applied for a visa to travel to the United States, they had to declare their HIV status, and then they had to apply for a waiver. If they were to receive a waiver, which of course wasn't guaranteed, um, then their status would be indicated on their passport. Okay, so this is like late 80s, early 90s, and it would say on your passport that you were HIV positive and you got a waiver. Like, you imagine the stigma that existed at this time, and so now your identification document had this. Um, and then the details would be filed in the U.S. Embassy in their home country. So that was gonna, there was no confidentiality at all. So due to this policy, in November 1989, organizations began announcing their intent to boycott the conference. The Geneva-based League of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies was one of the first to call for a boycott of the conference due to the law. Others announced around the same time that they were going to boycott. Uh, the UK AIDS Consortium and the Third World advised all of its 32 member organizations not to attend. And organizations offered a variety of reasons for their support of the boycott in opposition to the US policy. So the National Commission on AIDS argued that the policy unfairly discriminates against people who know they have AIDS while thousands who may be ignorant of their infection are permitted to enter without question. Uh, the commission chair, June Osborne, uh, went on that the policy also implies that HIV and AIDS are a general threat as opposed to an infection with restricted modes of transmission. Uh, Sue Lucas, the UK AIDS Consortium's secretary, noted that the procedure that people would be required to follow if they wanted to come to the US for the conference that it, quote, clearly compromises the confidentiality of HIV-positive people and people with AIDS and could be particularly serious for nationals of countries where the government suppresses the rights of people who are HIV-positive. By offering sponsorship to help people to attend the conference, the agency itself may be putting an individual into the position of either identifying themselves as HIV-positive or breaking the law. Um, the Canadian AIDS Society echoed this critique, noting the policy could lead to discriminatory discriminatory treatment for anyone whose name was entered into such a database. Uh, and you have to keep in mind at this time there's also like some politicians who wanted to quarantine all people who had HIV, so these are like really real concerns. The threat of the boycott put additional pressure on the International AIDS Society, which also opposed the ban. The society strongly encouraged President George H.W. Bush to overturn the ban through a pretty rigorous campaign. In return for its efforts in April, just two months before the conference, the uh, society secured waivers for all HIV-positive delegates to attend this conference and all subsequent, quote, White House-approved scientific or professional AIDS-related conferences to be held in the U.S. 
And then the administration charged the Health and Human Services Secretary, at that time Louis Sullivan, with determining which conference were, quote, in the public interest and so would qualify for the visas. But the ban on HIV-positive immigrants stood. The society's decision to continue with the conference anyway signaled to many its complicity with flawed U.S. government policies. In the eyes of many would-be participants, the government's waivers did not address the larger problem with the restrictions, which stigmatized and discriminated and could function to drive HIV-positive people further underground. Furthermore, the waivers created this distinction between temporary travelers and those seeking long-term immigration status. And many accused the government of making that distinction on purpose in order to weaken the links among those who opposed the policy, right, so to break the coalition. Feeling left with little other choice, numerous countries and individuals in 130 groups and organizations from around the world chose to go forward with the boycott of the conference. While some conference organizers suggested that attendance and registration uh, was not much affected by the boycott, others maintained that up to 1,000 possible delegates participated in the boycott, and some put the numbers as high as 2,000 to 3,000 people um, who didn't register who otherwise would have. Even if numbers of program participants remained consistent with the 1989 conference, significant organizations and actors in global discussions on HIV-AIDS boycotted the conference, including the countries of France, Canada, Great Britain, Norway, Sweden, and Switzerland, uh, the European Parliament, the International League of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, the British Medical Association, Oxfam, the Canadian AIDS Society, and the British, Canadian, French, and Norwegian Red Cross Societies. So pretty widespread boycott. Boycotters did not make this decision lightly, given that they were left with a terrible choice. Either tacitly support or endorse the U.S. policy, or risk the lives of people living with HIV and AIDS by not participating in this crucial exchange of scientific ideas about the disease. In taking the principled stance to boycott the conference, boycotters hoped to send a strong enough message to the U.S. and other governments that it was they and not the boycotters who would have blood on their hands. Life and death, after all, was the currency boycotters hoped would be persuasive. Now, local activists organized massive protests of the conference's events. Protesters marched and chanted outside the conference building in San Francisco and staged media spectacles, uh, very common of AIDS activists at the time. These protests were ignited by the travel ban, but also focused on other issues uh, like the speed of drug trials and the law that at that time also prevented homosexuals from migrating legally to the U.S., so that was still in place at this time. Um, some international activists also planned protests during the conference. Uh, for example, a group of activists in Sydney, Australia, staged a demonstration at the U.S. consulate uh, to draw attention to discriminatory U.S. law and show solidarity with the boycott. The significance of the boycott and the media coverage it attracted for almost a year helped to make the protests and actions more visible. Several official delegates of the conference reportedly gave their passes away to protesters who would then be able to get through security in order to attend and disrupt the closing session, uh, specifically the speech of, of Human, Health, uh, and Services, Human, and Health, Human Health and Services Secretary uh, Sullivan, who was supposed to give the last speech of the conference. And this was one of the most widely covered actions that activists staged. So uh, Paul Volberding, who was the chair of the International AIDS Conference, uh, came to the stage to introduce the closing ceremony's last speaker, Secretary Sullivan. And in his introduction, he used the word honorable to describe Sullivan. And whether this was the official cue, uh, activists immediately began groaning at this point. Uh, and the sound just steadily increased. Uh, Volberding waited for the audience to quiet down, but the audience never quieted down. Um, and it's amazing, you can watch this on C-SPAN. So Sullivan takes the stage, um, and he begins his speech as planned. Like, imagine if you were all screaming at me, and I'm just standing here doing exactly what I'm doing. This is what Sullivan did. Um, and so um, protest, when, as soon as Sullivan gets there, protesters rush the stage as close as they could get. Um, they played police sirens, whistles, and horns. Um, they had big signs held up. They were chanting. Um, for several minutes, the proceedings were completely stalled. Um, and eventually they just started chanting, shame, 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 shame at Sullivan, shaking their fist in unison. Some were chanting other slogans, demanding action. They threw crumpled pieces of paper and paper airplanes. And Sullivan never loses his composure. Um, in fact, he only once addressed the protest in general, stating, quote, let us not turn our frustrations into theater. We cannot become symbols driven by slogans, using the media as a proxy to provide high drama. We must find the compassion and the humanity to transcend misunderstanding. And yes, 
even transcend hatred and violence. The truth of the matter is that we need each other, and that will always be so. Of course, his words remained largely inaudible over the crowd, and he continued his speech, lauding the advancements and financial resources that the Bush administration was putting forth in the fight against AIDS, which only fueled the fire. Uh, protesters clearly had an impact, and they actually brought scientists then into the political space. Um, after the event, scientists were quoted saying that they agreed that Sullivan deserved such treatment, um, which, I mean, th there was always tension between scientists and activists around AIDS at this time, uh, but uh, they felt that he represented discriminatory policies and so deserved it. The boycott and disruptive protests clearly opened additional space for scientists to express political views that they might not otherwise have expressed. Uh, many of those who chose to attend the conference, so the ones who didn't boycott, they still wore red armbands um, as recommended by the Bay Area Physicians for Human Rights to indicate solidarity with those who boycotted and to stand in opposition to discriminato discriminatory laws. And other delegates actually prepared protest statements to be read before or during their scientific presentations. Uh, so Lars Olaf Collings, who was then the president of the International AIDS Society, he also spoke in the closing ceremony. He expressed frustration with discriminatory policy and showed at least superficial support for protesters. And in the middle of the speech, he stated very forcefully, said, quote, the IAS has concerned itself with the needs of infected persons and the protection of human rights, a cornerstone for, the su for successful prevention of HIV infection. Prejudice and discrimination are hindrances to implementing intervention programs. It is shameful when unfounded discrimination is ennobled to law as is the case with travel restrictions instituted by several countries. So the crowd at this point erupts in loud applause uh, for s several seconds at the frankness of this important leader's words. He goes on, he says, the symbolic impact is even greater than the practical. How can we expect the private person to behave in a rational and responsible way to prevent HIV infection or to reject prejudice? when states first set a bad example by instituting irrational laws, and then even worse, after realizing that the laws are unscientific and useless through political bigotry, do not change them. Again, the crowd erupts in applause. Um, though he didn't name the US government directly, he was clearly focusing on the US government. Like some of the other scientific speakers, Collings uh, lamented the way that politics obstructed scientific advancement and research, again showing this tension. Uh, for example, um, Anthony Fauci, who's sort of famous in AIDS um, history stories, uh, who at the time the director of the um, National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, he didn't make any mention of the travel ban or discriminatory government policy in his closing address. Um, in his brief political comments during an otherwise dense scientific address, I'll say, uh, he insisted that while activists and scientists could and had worked together, it was unfair for activists to charge scientists and doctors with being uncaring or to call them names. Um, but unlike Fauci, Cowlings really seemed most outraged by the politics being played by governments as opposed to the activists. Again, the boycott opening the space for him to do it. He chastised those who framed the protesters as irrational, as I said, um, when governments were the ones being irrational. Um, Collings finished the political section of his speech interwoven with applause and support from the audience. He said, quote, it is in this context that we so much regret the atmosphere which has colored the preparation for this conference when the free exchange of scientific information is obstructed due to political reasons. <laughs> However, at this moment, we should look forward and continue to push for travel restrictions to be rejected in all countries. I understand that due to the remarkable political changes toward openness and freedom in Eastern Europe, we may expect that the current travel restrictions for HIV-infected persons will be discarded in some of these countries. Let us hope that such good examples will promote changes in other countries as well. So the audience sort of chuckles at this point in his speech, recognizing the irony of countries that were recently part of the Soviet bloc now having freer and less discriminatory policies than the United States, and also at this time Canada. Collins again did not mention any country na by name. But as he went on, he became more uh, explicit in his indictments. He says, and let us hope that it will be possible to sponsor future international AIDS conferences in North America. For the moment, though, this is very uncertain. IAS has resolved uh, that further IA IAS conferences will not be held in countries that restrict the entry of HIV-infected travelers. Therefore, the society resolved to withdraw its sponsorship of the AIDS International Conference uh, in Boston if U.S. immigration policy continues to restrict the travel of HIV-infected persons and to discourage its members and other concerned individuals 
from attending AIDS conferences in any foreign country whose official policies restrict the travel of HIV-infected persons. This is also uh, in accordance with the views expressed by the Boston organizers who quote here. So this very forceful statement, finally explicitly calling out the United States and overtly blending science and politics, not only affirmed the legitimacy of the boycott and protests of this conference in the eyes of the major sponsoring organizations, but it also indicated the legitimacy of further boycott should travel laws not change. And as will be seen in the next section, the, the significant international participation in the boycott and the protests inside and outside the conference um, helped to uh, highlight how boycott also became a mechanism uh, for transnational uh, coalition building. So now we'll shift to the 1992 um, conference. So the 1992 conference was again scheduled for the United States, this time in Boston, and it was sponsored by Harvard University's AIDS Institute. Reports from the Times suggest that conference organizers gave the government until November 1, 1990 to overturn the ban on HIV-positive immigration. President Bush did sign a new and far-reaching immigration bill into law in late November, and it includes a provision that shifted the decision for whether to exclude people uh, from the hands of Congress, which I don't know if you know this about this law, but after, from 1987 to um, 1990, essentially, uh, it was Congress's decision that HIV was a disease that um, prevented you from immigrating. The way that the provision was written into the 1987 Supplemental Appropriations Bill, so that the ban was also attached to an appropriations bill. Um, and of course, Jesse Helms famously kind of led this. Um, so it shifted then to the HHS secretary, you know, God forbid the person who runs health should make health decisions. Um, but by this time, Secretary Sullivan, who still was a regular target of the AIDS activist efforts, had publicly stated that there was no public health reason to exclude HIV-positive people from immigrating to the United States. So the Bush administration planned to lift the ban on June 1, 1991, but conservative leaders galvanized a massive letter-writing campaign in support of the ban. The administration received over 40,000 negative letters, um, and so by May 1991, it sort of reversed course and kept the ban in place. So in response to the outpouring of public support for the existing law, and the Bush administration's leader, uh, decision. Leaders of the Harvard AIDS Institute um, issued statements urging people to contact the Centers for Disease Control to express outrage at the current law. Now, it's unclear the response the calls generate, generated, but the Bush administration did not budge. Um, protests continued at the 1991 conference in Florence, Italy, and in August uh, of that year, Britain threatened to boycott again the AIDS conference uh, if the HIV ban wasn't lifted. Um, uh, uh, which is a, according to a letter from their Secretary of State of Health. Uh, Max Essex was one of the Boston hosts, and he cautioned possible boycotters to consider some of the deeper implications of their actions. He, he warned that canceling the conference may have been exactly what the U.S. government wanted, um, which, you know, we'll never know that, right? But nonetheless, organizers decided that the 1992 conference would not be held in Harvard, but abroad. By September, they decided to hold the conference in Amsterdam, Activists continued their efforts targeting the conference for while it was no longer held in the United States. The ban still prevented HIV-positive immigrants living in the U.S. from traveling abroad to attend because they could face detention or deportation when they came back into the U.S., right? So it didn't really, it didn't cure the problem. As the conference approached, the immigration working group of ACT UP, uh, Golden Gate and ACT UP San Francisco, led the international charge, using the attention focused on the Amsterdam conference as an opportunity to put further pressure on the U.S. government. Uh, the working group called July 19, 1992, a day against travel and immigration restrictions in order to draw attention to the U.S. policy, urging organizations to stage appropriate, quote, high visibility actions that the media could not ignore. Uh, the working group suggested sites like INS offices, but also symbolic and real borders for protests. In addition, members spent all spring writing letters to celebrities, world leaders, and global ACT UP chapters to gain more support and attention. Uh, these letters were addressed, I mean, numerous people, but including people like um, French President Mitterrand and European Member of Parliament uh, Mollet, uh, celebrities like Magic Johnson and Elizabeth Taylor. Activists also sent letters to conference organizers, demanding time at the podium to focus specific attention on U.S. policy. Most specifically, they requested that Tomas Fabregas, an HIV-positive legal permanent resident from Spain who lived in the U.S., uh, to be the person with AIDS selected to speak at the opening ceremony. So 
eventually they always would have one HIV positive person, a person living with AIDS, to speak sort of on behalf apparently of all uh, people with HIV. Um, and the, the conference organizers repeatedly denied this request for Fabregas to do it. Uh, in a letter endorsed by more than 45 international organizations, the immigrant working group argued to the conference chair, Jonathan Mann, that activists felt stonewalled as they had no say in who was allowed to speak at the opening ceremony, um, and they were simply told that he couldn't speak due to time constraints. The working group insisted on the necessity of speakers selected by activists in order to represent people living with AIDS and to represent political perspectives. Uh, presumably, this letter also functioned as a threat to disrupt the ceremony, similarly to how uh, they disrupted the closing ceremony at San Francisco. In typical ACT UP fashion, activists and organizers used creative, aesthetic, and outrageous means to draw international attention. Uh, one fascinating strategy involved showing copies of French citizen Fernand Beauval's passport. Uh, the HIV-positive Beauval had applied for a visa and a waiver for the 1990 conference. And so his passport included the special stamp that I was talking about on, on that U.S. immigration officials used to designate HIV-positive status. Um, and that practice did eventually change, by the way. Um, but in a March 25th, uh, 1992 letter, uh, the working group um, asked Beauval for his passport in order to visually compare the stamp required by the U.S. government with red J stamps that Nazi Germany required European Jewish people to have on their passports before and during World War II. So in a source, as with all Holocaust analogies, uh, the working group wanted to visually compare the treatment of HIV-positive people with victims of the Holocaust in order to you know, evidence the severity of the law. The centerpiece of the protest strategy in Amsterdam involved ACT UP's media work and its holding of a press conference to denounce the policy. These media events created one of the most memorable events of the entire protest and opened up possibilities for hearers to make connections among and between countries, policies, and treatment of HIV-positive people. Before, during, and after the July conference, Fabregas dared U.S. immigration authorities to detain and deport him as he sought to re-enter U.S. territory after attending the conference in Amsterdam. For years, he played a crucial part in activism, drawing attention to the U.S. policy, building links between queer direct action groups like ACT UP, predominantly gay nonprofits like the San Francisco AIDS Foundation, and immigration advocacy groups like the Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights. Furthermore, he and the immigrant working group of ACT UP, of which he was a leader, worked tirelessly to build international awareness of the HIV ban, and as mentioned above, to gain support from major leaders and celebrities uh, through the letter writing campaign. Uh, Fabregas had a special fondness for actress and gay icon Elizabeth Taylor, uh, who was, as you probably recall, an, an early supporter of the rights of HIV-positive people. Uh, Taylor eventually responded to his many, 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 many requests, uh, and she spoke alongside him at a press conference he encouraged her organization, the American Foundation for AIDS Research, to host in Amsterdam during the 1992 conference. Taylor became a willing advocate for the cause, and at one point, she famously held up her passport for the camera to see and stated, quote, imagine if I tested positive for HIV. I'm sure the immigration people would be very courteous, and my travel arrangements back to England would be very comfortable. But back to England I would go. You see, I carry a British passport. Would Mr. Bush really prevent me from returning to the U.S.? Would he really keep me from my children? Very, you know, dramatic Elizabeth Taylor style here. Fabregas' remarks, both at the, the press conference he coordinated with Taylor and upon his return to the United States a couple days later, helped to illustrate the way that the last previous two years of boycott, protest, and threat of boycott enabled the possibility for transnational coalition building. In his statements, Fabregas used the U.S. national border both as a literal site and as a metaphor for all borders, as a theater in which to call for transnational coalitions. In his Amsterdam statement, Fabregas begins by suggesting he's merely there to offer his personal experience as, quote, a person trapped by the dangerous and discriminatory HIV and immigration travel restrictions. He personally speaks of those in the United States and how stressful the policy has been for him and for his partner, but he does not look to make the occasion about him. He goes on, quote, we are joined by over four and one-half million people of every nationality who have been forced by the U.S. government to submit to HIV testing when applying for residency in the United States of America. And we are joined by the 17 million foreign-born currently living in the U.S. who need to be reached and can be reached, but are not being reached with the education and support of services we know are effective 
in preventing the transmission of HIV. I am one of them, and I can assure you that those 17 million will not seek an HIV test if the result means possible deportation. Now here, Fabregas notes the connection between all those who suffer under such policies, calling out the irony that these policies actually enable rather than prevent the spread of HIV for people who can and should be reached but are, are not being reached due to the policy. But he's not, he does not intend to make his experience a synecdoche or a representation for all others. He recognizes his relative privilege. He goes on, I'm here today, but I left many friends at home who cannot risk making their story known. He begins by telling the story of another member of the ACT UP immigra immigration working group, a Brazilian national who cannot get his permanent residency uh, because he contracted HIV, of course, in the United States. Um, he describes the negative health impacts his friend experiences under the stress, but again, he stops, wishing not to make the experience of people in the U.S. as a synecdoche or a representation for all others. He then goes on. He says, African students who have earned the opportunity to pursue a university education in Europe are required by Belgium to be HIV tested and may be denied entry if they are HIV positive. Burma offers a harrowing example of the consequences of these restrictions. Young Burmese girls are working in the brothels of Thailand. They work until they contract HIV, at which point they are deported. In April of this year, 25 of these HIV positive women were turned over to the Burmese military who then injected them with cyanide. I wear this black armband for them. Now, one can and certainly should point to the exoticism and orientalism that potentially undergird, undergirds Fabregas' example, this last one. But it is the one that receives the most specific detail uh, as a history and will likely strike listeners as the most horrific and unbelievable. So in this way, one could, with relative ease, let Belgium and the United States off the hook for merely testing and banning. But an additional reading, I think, is also required here, as Fabregas, use, use, his use of this example functions in other ways. First of all, so-called first world countries like the U.S. and Belgium are implicated in the extreme example of Burma and Thailand as they are each presented as manifestations of similar policies and logics. Second, the example is not unreflexively harrowing, that is his framing after all, and as a result it reveals the potential scale of the problem of fear uh, of and discrimination against HIV positive people, especially those already deemed less than human, homosexuals and sex workers the world round. Now, while some in the U.S. may not feel bad for oversexed homosexuals in the U.S., the flip side of Orientalism is a first world desire to save, as Spivak famously put it, brown women from brown men. But in blurring the experiences and subjectivity among and between European immigrant gays in the U.S., African students in Belgium, and Burmese sex workers in Thailand, Fabregas calls those who hear his speech to understand the complex interrelatedness and impacts of HIV AIDS for a transnational community. Now Fabregas ends his statement by telling George Bush when and where his flight arrives back to the United States. Upon his arrival and wearing a No Borders t-shirt, Fabregas denounced US policy even as he actually re-entered the country without major incident. While his arrival speech focuses entirely on the US policy, he repeats many of the same points from his speech two days prior. Thus, the U.S. border becomes a, the site by which a broader coalition is possible, especially since the Bush administration refused to rise to Fabregas' challenge, evidencing not only what he refers to as the, quote, moral repugnance of the law, but also the arbitrariness with which it is applied, an arbitrariness that, in its constant threat and in its citations elsewhere, leads to the death of so many. So con concluding thoughts. In this paper, I've, I've tried to emphasize the necessity for rhetoric scholars to pay attention to boycott as a legitimate rhetorical strategy, one that both catalyzes other kinds of protest and rhetorical action, and one that enables transnational coalitional possibilities. I hope this paper has shown not only the rich rhetorical life of boycotts themselves, but how boycotts work so forcefully to create rhetorical space that would otherwise not exist. This paper also reveals the necessity for examining boycott campaigns that are not primarily asking consumers to use their economic power as a mode of persuasion. In this instance, a boycott that used the threat of the possibility of death through with the withdrawal of participation aimed to send a powerful message. By the early 1990s, these and other actions, as well as the global reach of the AIDS pandemic, 
had certainly led to many transnational networks, coalitions, and other kinds of relationships built out of necessity and in fear in order to save and sustain lives. Both the boycott of the Sixth International AIDS Conference and the onslaught of national policies that banned HIV-positive immigration leading up to it required nothing less than transnational cooperation, not only among scientists, but also among activists and others living with HIV-AIDS who demanded the human right to migration. While such actions facilitated transnational coalitions, <coughs> the boycotts, the protest, and the subsequent threat of the boycott of the AIDS Conference did little to persuade the U.S. government to change its position on HIV-positive immigrants. In fact, by 1993, despite promises to the contrary, Bill Clinton uh, signed the ban permanently into law in the Immigration and Nationality Act, uh, a law which stood until 2010 when um, Obama uh, created a rule to overturn it. The International AIDS Conference only returned to the United States in 2012 after a 22-year boycott uh, due to U.S. policy. The original boycott certainly inspired the movement created in the mid-2000s mid that eventually secured the law change. Uh, the Coalition to Lift the Bar was a coalition started in 2006 by HIV, queer, and uh, immigration advocates and activists to change the law. Many of the same exact arguments that boycotters and AIDS activists used 20 years earlier remained central to the coalition's work, which eventually, through tireless effort, succeeded. One lesson activists knew well in the early years is reiterated by N. Ordover, one of the founders of the coalition. Ordover writes, quote, as queers set out a progressive agenda, our project must be about the reshuffling and restructuring of power. This won't happen unless we act to expand human rights, ensure the mobility of people and ideas, the kind of globalization the left can get behind, and expose the lunacy and treachery of borders. We cannot afford to be less ambitious than this. This is certainly a point AIDS activism on immigration reiterates over and over, and it's one that remains relevant in our thinking today about globalization, transnationalism, and power. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, there are a lot of lessons to be learned about, I mean, on a variety of levels, both, I think, like the more scientific stuff, which I know less about, but um, the, the kind of uh, rhetorical framing, I think, is very, very similar. Um, so the kind of fear of the foreign other who carries disease um, and, um, you know, always uh, um, Africa framed as a unified entity um, and source. Um, I think, yeah, the parallels are pretty stark right now, um, and I suspect, especially if more cases come to the U.S., it's going to get even starker. I mean, this and, and I think you know Ebola is a, a different sort of thing, um, but people thought HIV. Some people thought HIV was spread casually, too, um, and so I suspect those parallels are going to get even more um, clear. Uh, and I, I definitely plan to be kind of following that more fully. But I, what are you seeing? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that point is really important, and I think it has so much to do with our broader imaginary of this thing, Africa. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, I would agree that I don't see any Yeah, thank you. Oh, yes. That was a question about 
the parallels between Ebola and HIV. Yeah. Sorry, good thing. Yeah, in the back. Yeah, so a uh, question uh, in uh, Shulman and Hubbard's documentary, United in Anger, um, which is sort of a history of ACT UP, um, Shulman talks about uh, both the issues of quarantine, but also that there was a, an idea to um, tattoo HIV positive people. Um, I haven't been addressing it too much directly in, in this work. Um, there is a good bit of interesting work out there about that. So um, Dan Brower, um, has written a piece about this and how first it was a threat, but then later um, HIV positive people decided some to, to actually kind of reclaim it and to tattoo their bodies, their seemingly healthy bodies um, with these um, images. And he's actually working on another uh, piece that looks at the parallels between um, the, the grandchildren of Holocaust survivors' uh, decisions to tattoo their grandparents' numbers um, from concentration camps on their arms and the parallel between that practice and HIV tattoos. So there's a lot going on around that. I haven't, uh, I'm not focusing too much on that, but um, it's definitely something I've come across in the archives. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so, um, yeah, I think that that's a great question. So I haven't, I haven't yet. Oh, so the question is um, the current boycotts um, of the International AIDS Conference uh, in solidarity with sex workers. Um, so uh, it, countries like the U.S., for example, sex workers are still. If you have a history of sex work, you're still banned from immigrating legally to the U.S. Right. So, I mean, I, a number of other countries, I think, have that same, um, that same kind of policy. Uh, and so that's that's a great point. I haven't actually. Um, been focusing too much on the contemporary, but I really should. Um, so duly noted, and we'll write that down. Um, do you have thoughts on that, though? Yep. Yeah, that's a really, really great point. You have to come tell me what your name is afterwards, so I give you credit for the idea if I take it up. <laughs> cool. Thank you. Yeah, so a uh, question about the, the sort of possibilities this suggests about coalitions between activists and um, and scientists and, and sort of the role of boycott as an enabling or, uh, um, or uh, maybe a hindering factor. I mean, I think it's interesting, and I think it's always fraught. And if you look at AIDS history, AIDS activist history, um, that relationship is super tense. And, and one of the things that I think is interesting, going back to that documentary, so um, two recent documentaries that have come out about AIDS activist history. So one, um, Hubbard and Schulman's United in Anger, tells one kind of story of ACT UP's history. And then the other um, documentary that came out uh, recently is called um, How to Survive a Plague. And it's hard to believe that these stories are about the, the same time period and the same organizations because what United in Anger shows is rowdy activists are the heroes and collectives of them. Um, there's a few individuals that stick out, but it, it, it's a collective sort of thing with multicultural, multiple genders. Um, but what How to Survive a Plague basically shows is a few um, who were already very privileged white gay men who got sick um, and then learned the science better than the scientists, and they are the heroes of the day. Um, and so those, the two documentaries to me reveal this tension very much, which was always very present. So there were these moments where um, the coalitions, I think, were very vibrant um, and very youthful, but they were always fraught in part because um, I think a, a, a large portion of, of AIDS activists, like members of ACT UP, for example, um, remained understandably very suspicious 
um, of, of both the work of the Treatment Action Group, which eventually splits off from ACT UP, but um, also the scientific community more broadly. Um, so so the, the, the possibility for coalition, I think, is fraught is the sort of simplistic answer, um, but I think it's, it's accurate. The question of the boycott, I mean, you know, boycott is also such an interesting, it's an interesting thing to look at, and I've been thinking through it a lot in relation to um, what's been going on with Israel-Palestine, um, the case of Stephen Salida at the University of Illinois and the choice um, of a number of academics, including myself, to um, boycott the University of Illinois. Um, what is the upshot of, of that strategy? I think um, it's hard to say. I think it's mixed. I think there's no um, – it's, it's boycott is always an impure strategy. It's always – I think it's always crappy when people are forced into that situation. Because um, and I feel like that's usually when boycott happens is people feel forced. It's the last, it's the last option strategy. Um, and so in that way, I think in this instance, it did open up some possibilities. But the U.S. didn't change its laws for 22 years, and so that memory is completely absent. So, um, so I don't think there's a generalizable thing to say. Sorry, that was kind of a long answer. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it depends. I mean, I think increasingly we see consumer boycotts sort of thrown out. Uh, so let's boycott Chick-fil-A because they don't like gay people. And, uh, okay, so don't eat Chick-fil-A. Great. I'm sure that's going to help a lot of gay people. Um, <laughs> you know, so I think we've kind of, we have the, a bit of an um, oversaturation of boycott as a strategy contemporarily. Um, I think historically, though, like if you look at um, the great boycott with, with um, the United Farm Workers, I think that was viewed very much as um, a last option strategy, or contemporarily when um, the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, um, farm worker um, organization, decided first to boycott Taco Bell, then to boycott Subway. And these were really, they just wanted these groups to pay one penny more per pound for tomatoes. That's what they wanted. Um, and those boycotts actually, they turned out to work very well, but they felt, they felt as if it was um, a, a, a last sort of resort. And I think that is where it's difficult. Who gets to determine what last resort is? Um, and I think, you know, this is part of what makes the question of Israel very fraught right now, too, is that um, a lot of folks who are against the boycott, not even, I mean, the questions of free speech and stuff are an almost different issue, but um, feel as if we're not at last resort yet, and so it seems premature to some people. So I think that's always the challenge. Um, but that make, it's even harder when we have like constant calls to boycott this or that for maybe good reasons, but not for last resort. Yeah, I think it, I think it does. I mean, I'm I'm always against like Chick Fil A boycott. I'm kind of one of those who's like, I'm gonna go eat at Chick Fil A then, just to like <laughs> I think it's a dumb strategy. Why? Because what difference does it make? Um, so I think, but yeah, but that's kind of I'm a little cynical about. Consumer activism generally. Sorry, I don't think I repeated that question. I think some consumer activism is great. I mean, so the, the you know, UFW example again, um, a, a question is, um, if, if I'm cynical about consumer boycotts, like what might be more successful uh, as a strategy? So, uh, like I said, I think like for the Mockley farm workers, that kind of call for a consumer boycott, great. Um, UFW, obviously, um, you know, to this day, you can drink only wine that's UFW approved, right? Because um, there are still lasting impacts of this. Um, but I think what we see a lot, uh, or what I see a lot, what I experience a lot um, as an activist and as a <laughs> scholar is that people are really happy um, to say, oh, I'm not going to buy this. God, I got my activism done for the day. Um, 
I think consumer activism joined with other kinds of um, direct action, other kinds of letter writing campaigns, other kinds of community organizing and education. It's one piece, um, but I see a lot of people that that's that's it, consumer activism. Or you know, I'm not going to shop at Trader Joe's anymore because they use GMOs. It's like Trader Joe's doesn't care. Um, you know, there's what what are you doing otherwise about GMOs? Are you just not shopping? So now you're going to only shop at Whole Foods? Okay. <laughs> so I think like. It's not to be anti them, but to be put them in conversation with others that Yeah, so the question about the, the danger of using the tropes to nexus in coalition building. Um, I think this is, I think synecdoche and sort of related kinds of tropes are end up being easy to rely upon because I think in activism we are so reliant on narrative strategy as the primary strategy. Um, and I think um, increasingly in neoliberalism, which tries to reduce everything to the level of the individual. So what we should all be most concerned about is our individual freedoms and our individual rights. And so what happens in a, in, and what that takes attention away from is both government responsibility and collective responsibility. And, and so I think one of the things that's happened with our movements is because we've relied so heavily on narrative strategy um, to make our case, uh, you know, so if you think about the undocumented youth movement, for example, it's all about stories of these, you know, um, young people who are American in every way except for their passport. Um, they get straight A's. Uh, they want to be doctors. They just want to contribute to society. They don't want to cause problems, right? Um, that so what happens with that narrative is um, it becomes an organizing mechanism that I think feeds into this focus only on individuals um, and on individual choice, individual freedom, and it takes attention away um, from systemic critique um, and it takes attention away um, from collectivity. And uh, I think that then at this time, and so, so you know, early stages sort of, um, of neoliberalism in the early 90s, but and especially now, uh, synecdoche becomes a, a huge risk in that regard. Um, and, um, but I think like with any other strategy, um, the risk doesn't, I mean, you know, it's, you know, power doesn't work just sort of in that unidirection. So the risk it entails also is perhaps what entails its possibilities. So I think the challenge is when to use it, when to pair it with other strategies. Um, and I, there's no science to it. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. That's a great question. So will, so will my work look at um, um, how activists shifted the medical model for AIDS? Um, yes, I, I think that will without a doubt be part uh, of what will happen, especially um, I'm imagining that I'm in the kind of early stages of collecting um, archival stuff on the, the farm worker piece of this. Um, but one of the things that we see that happened with how <laughs> activists had to address farm worker communities, because what in, in 1990, um, the three states that had the highest number of cases of HIV were the three states that had the highest number of farm workers. Now that's not the story that we tell, it's not a rural story that we tell about HIV, but what we know from a lot of the research on um, migrant communities um, is you know, there's lots of um, same-sex sex behavior, there's lots of unprotected sexual behavior because you know, people, it's transient and um, you know, just like all that happens in non-migrant culture happens there too because people are um, in closer proximity 
actually get um, spread um, quicker in some instances. So there's, but so people initially went in with these models um, that were taken directly from urban environments, um, and we're trying to apply them to these migrant communities, and there was no success at all. So rethinking um, the cultural dimensions um, in that case, I think, will be a big place where this will happen. Um, in terms of the kind of broader activism that shifted, uh, has shifted from the medical approach, I mean, there's a pretty well-documented history of, of that, I think. Um, and I have yet to see in some of these particular cases if that comes out as a predominant theme. Yeah, no, this is a great question. So, so how are some of these issues of uh, 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 sex and gender, transgender issues, uh, brought into the kind of challenging this sort of medical model, which still focuses on sort of a cis male um, right. physiology? Um, it's interesting. Uh, some of the very, very little in a lot of the archival data that I have so far has just been brought up. Um, and so, one of the one of the things I think I'm also going to look at is um, some of the work in refugee communities, which Really, um, a lot of that work got started in the early 2000s, so long time after this stuff I'm talking about here. Um, and a lot of that work was targeted towards women and was women doing that work. Uh, but then, you know, some of the other research I've done in the past, this kind of question of homophobia um, actually doesn't even come up, or alternative genders actually doesn't even come up in a lot of the um, activism and refugee activism and advocacy in refugee communities. Um, not even because refugee communities were like homophobic, but because the assumption was that they were homophobic. Um, and so um, there's not much. So uh, definitely something um, that I need to think through more, though, and, and actually attune my eye for. So I appreciate that. 